You're listening to The American Journal with your host, Harrison Smith. Watch it live right now at band.video. Good morning, folks. I am guest hosting today. My name is Chase Geyser. Harrison will be back with you later this week, I believe. But for now, you guys are stuck with me. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Today, I want to talk about so much. Particularly, I want to talk about the individual and the importance of emphasizing individual sovereignty, protecting individual rights, and what it really means to be free and how it is necessary in order for every individual in America to achieve fulfillment. The first thing I want to do is show you a clip. Let's go ahead and play clip three. This is from the movie The Fountainhead, of which Ayn Rand wrote the screenplay. I believe it was in 1949 when this came out. Let's check it out. Do it just for their sake? No. A man who works for others without payment is a slave. I do not believe that slavery is noble, not in any form, nor for any purpose whatsoever. Is there any kind of payment I can offer you? Yes, there is. Now, listen to me. I've worked on the problem of low-rent construction for years. I thought of the new inventions, the new materials, the great possibilities never used to build cheaply, simply, and intelligently. I loved it because it was a problem I wanted to solve. Yes, I understand. Peter, before you can do things for people, you must be the kind of man who can get things done. But to get things done, you must love the doing not the people, your own work, not any possible object of your charity. I'll be glad if, if men who need it find a better manner of living in the house I build, but that's not the motive of my work, nor my reason, nor my reward. My reward, my purpose, my life, is the work itself. My work done my way. Nothing else matters to me. The MAGA movement was perhaps the greatest political movement to have come about, to have manifested in the United States, even since the civil rights movement, I think. And we like the notion of making America great again, because, of course, everyone wants this country to be as great, as prosperous as possible. But we often shout MAGA or make America great again or America first without really diving in to what it means to make America great. How can any nation truly be great? When you boil it down, I think the simplest answer is America can only be great if Americans are achieving greatness. And the reason I wanted to show you that Howard Rourke clip from The Fountainhead is because that book, that philosophy is about individuals becoming the greatest version of themselves, individuals identifying their own values, using reason, and having the discipline and the integrity to live according to those values. So whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, whatever, identify your values, know yourself, know what you believe, but 
Don't just know the truth. Live according to it as far as your mind can discern it. So today I want to talk a little bit about how Americans can achieve personal greatness, what self-actualization actually means, and in the next segment, we'll get into Maslow's theory of self-actualization, the hierarchy of needs, and how it relates to the government and demands a greater protection of rights, liberty, and freedom from the government. Stay tuned. Folks, I woke up this morning on fire. I stopped, I dropped, and I rolled, and thankfully I am unharmed, but I am still hotter than cast iron in hell for America. Seriously, though, I woke up very excited about my life and the future of the country, and I want to share a little bit of that energy with you guys this morning because... I really think that there's a simple principle behind how we can actually save this country, and it starts with the salvation of the individual. Nobody can save you but yourself. However, the government can certainly get in the way and make things more difficult or easier for you. And so what I want to talk about are Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You guys could pull up the hierarchy when you get a chance. I want to show the audience just what's going on here. So Maslow was a psychologist many years ago, 20th century psychologist, and he is most famous for his theory of self-actualization. Self-actualization simply is actually becoming the best version of yourself, reaching your potential. So the theory is, there is a version of us that is not manifest. There is a version of us as individuals that exists only in the metaphysical realm, in the realm of ideas. It's a possible version. Similar to how there was a possible way to land on the moon before we landed on the moon, if you believe we landed on the moon. Or there is a possible way to build a skyscraper before it is built. There was a possible way to make the Golden Gate Bridge before it was built. And then it was manifest. And so what's so fascinating about self-actualization is because I think it really gets to the root of what the purpose of life is. Now, philosophers have been asking for millennia what the meaning of life is, and people disagree. But I have come to believe that the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the path toward fulfillment is the endeavor toward self-actualization. And I actually think that it is a at least compatible, if not explicitly supportive philosophy of Christianity. So if you think about Jesus Christ, famous for being sin-free, perfect, the perfect embodiment of what a human who does not miss the mark looks like. I don't know if you guys know this, but 
the actual meaning of the word sin is to miss the mark. To aim for something but not quite reach it. And so if we think about self-actualization in that context, it's actually quite compatible, harmonious, if not reinforcing of Christianity. And if we look at these hierarchy of needs, they start with very basic needs. Things like food and shelter, and then love and belonging, and then esteem, and then self-actualization. And the reason I want to bring this up is because I think this relates directly to what we're facing today with the hostile globalist takeover of our national sovereignty. And it's not really a matter of whether or not the globalists believe in national sovereignty so much as it is the fact that they don't believe in individual sovereignty. Because there's nothing more antithetical to individualism than globalism. It's literally the opposite, the whole world or just the individual. And one cannot believe in individual sovereignty without believing in national sovereignty. Globalism is really the philosophy of personal and individual abandonment. And what we see if we look at this hierarchy of needs, things like safety, shelter, basic needs, is that when the government comes in with atrocious policies that harm the supply chain, increase the cost of gasoline, cause shortages in the food supply, it makes it more and more difficult, if not impossible, for individuals to establish a foundation in their lives that allows them to reach self-actualization. So in theory, if the path to fulfillment is becoming the best version of yourself, and if the government is interfering with your ability to do that by violating your rights, or not affording or not protecting the freedoms needed to achieve self-actualization, then they're not just robbing you of a certain amount of prosperity or comfort or convenience, but they're actually robbing you of fulfillment itself. And if we think about a great America as an America built of great Americans, and we think about this government of the United States or these globalist agendas as interfering with the individual American's ability to reach self-actualization or greatness, then we can see that the only path toward national greatness is national sovereignty. And the only path toward national sovereignty is a rejection of globalism and the only path toward national greatness is the protection of individual rights. Now, one might look at the hierarchy of needs and say, oh, well, this is an argument for socialism because we need to establish uh, um, the security for, for, for the people that allows for them to reach their fulfillment. We need to provide them with food and shelter and safety and love and belonging and an external source of their self-esteem. 
But that's really not true at all because in order for the government to even attempt to provide those things, there's two sort of presumptions. The first is that they can do so without violating the rights of the individuals, which we know they can't because someone has to pay for those things. And the second is that self-actualization in that, in that case would be something accomplished from the outside. In my opinion, self-actualization is something that can only come from within. It cannot be given to you. It cannot be reached or attained from an external source. But it can certainly be interfered with from an external source. And I think this may perhaps be among the greatest arguments for liberty, the simple argument that if we want Americans to achieve greatness, we have to protect the freedoms to do and live according to what it takes. In the context of that, I want to emphasize the importance of combating the globalist agenda. It's, agenda. it's an agenda of sacrifice where every individual is sacrificed under the guise of the greater good, but really at the behest and for the benefit of a global political class for the sole purpose of a consolidation of power. And if the globalist agenda is manifest, if the globalists win, we will see a world for a time before collapse or during and throughout collapse where there is very little self-actualization, where there is very little greatness, where there is very little fulfillment. You know, it's said that we should keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Learn about The Great Reset by picking up a copy of Alex Jones' new book, the Great Reset on Amazon. Make sure you order it and pre-order it because the more orders you make, the higher it goes in the top seller list on Amazon and the more exposure we give these ideas and this truth to the American people. Let's win the war against globalism. Of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Of course, the globalists are trying to conquer every individual's soul in America and throughout the world. But a soul cannot be conquered without consent. It is the only thing that cannot be taken from you, but must be conceded. When I think about self-actualization, it reminds me of a journey that we all go through as we come of age where we are faced with the challenges and struggles of life. We are faced with the experiences that purge us from childhood into adulthood. And one of the key tenets of becoming a man, or a woman for that matter, whatever a woman is, I have to look that up, is self-esteem. 
And I think fundamentally, there, there may be something missing from the hierarchy of needs in that esteem isn't necessarily delineated as something that comes from within the way that it's portrayed in that graph, but something that can be sourced externally. And frankly, I don't think that any self-esteem or respect is worth anything unless it comes first from within. Because that internally sourced self-esteem is the esteem that gives you the conviction to live according to your values despite all odds, all consequences, all adversity. One cannot do what it takes to live a moral life, a just life, a true life, if their sense of self is dependent on the environment that they're in or external factors. And what we've seen from the Marxist leftists who ultimately become globalists because leftism cannot sustain itself and must expand indefinitely, what we see from them is an emphasis on this idea that there is no self. On the one hand, truth for them is subjective and not objective. So there's your truth. But yet on the other hand, there is no you. For the leftists, you are simply a manifestation of the groups to which you belong. For the leftists, I am not Chase Geyser, I am a white man. I am defined by the groups that I am placed into by society or the way that I am perceived by others rather than who I actually am. It's sort of an inverted perspective on the truth, perverted for that, for that matter, where you cannot exist without the collective sense of who you are. And I think that's part of the reason why leftists seem to hate America so much. And when I was speaking with Gavin McInnes yesterday on this very program, it came up that the better job Trump seemed to do, the better things got before the pandemic under his leadership, the more and more bitter the left seemed to be. And I think the reason that leftists embrace subjectivity and hate objective reality so much is because if we take on the responsibility of self-actualization, if we face reality and live according to it and respond accordingly to it, to make our lives better. Then we admit that the status of our life, the outcome of our lives, is the result of our individual decisions and actions. Something that the leftist does not have the self-esteem to acknowledge. 
See, with leftism, who you are is defined by how others perceive you. Reality is subjective. There is no objective truth. And everything in your life that you may otherwise be disappointed in or ashamed of is the result of an external injustice rather than an internal falling short. And so what we see with this postmodernism is an attack, an affront, an adversity, an antagonism to not only objective reality, but the notion of individual sovereignty itself. For they have not the courage to look inward to find the source of their problems. For we all tend to fear staring into the abyss and those who source their sense of self externally have only an abyss to gaze into upon looking inward. Let's play this clip uh, five, Christopher Walken. Look at this lion. He's the king of the jungle. Huge mane out there. He's laying down under a tree in the middle of Africa. He's so big. He's so hot. He doesn't want to move. Now, the little lion cubs, they start messing with him. Biting his tail, biting his ears. He doesn't do anything. The lioness, she starts messing with him. Coming over, making trouble. Still, nothing. Now, the other animals, they notice this. And they start to move in. The jackals. Hyenas. They're barking at him, laughing at him. They nip his toes and eat the food that's in his domain. They do this, and they get closer and closer and bolder and bolder, till one day, that lion gets up and tears the shit out of everybody, runs like the wind, eats everything in his path. Because every once in a while, the lion has to show the jackals who he is. The reason I wanted to share that clip is because we have a tendency to forget who we are and what we are capable of. And if our goal is truly to make America great again, then it is our duty as individuals to become great Americans. And I want to encourage you, to implore you, for the sake of not only yourself, but your country, to not forget who you are, what you are, what you are capable of. Despite what the leftists or the globalists may tell you, you are not a sheep. Despite that they try to herd you, you are not a sheep. You are a lion. We are lions. Take it back. Take yourself back. These leftists claim to love minority rights so much while simultaneously attacking the rights of the individual. On the one hand, they proclaim that they want as many rights as possible to be protected for disenfranchised communities. Whether it's by race or gender or sexuality, the leftists claim to fight for minority rights. But how can one claim to fight for minority rights if one doesn't fight for individual rights? For what greater minority is there than the individual? 
And frankly, this notion of group rights seems to me a logical fallacy in and of itself. What rights does a group have? What rights do you have that you get from a group that you are a part of? Our founding fathers wrote that there were certain truths that were self-evident, that there were certain rights that were inalienable, rights that could not be separated from the individual. Yet we see time and time again that the left, with its rhetoric and its policies, implies that rights are not something that individuals are born with, but something that groups bestow upon people or something that governments grant people as a courtesy or as a privilege. But if I were to leave a group, I wouldn't lose any of the rights that I have because no group affords me any right. This is based off of Locke's Second Treaties of Government, a book somewhat dense but short that every American with the time and the discipline should read. And it's this idea that as individuals, we are born, and when we are born, the only thing in our possession is our body, and our soul, and our will, and the greatest tool that nature has afforded us for our survival, our mind. And so if we take that premise and expand, we see that if our body is our own private property, and therefore we are the only ones that have a right to it, and if our mind and our wills are our own, then that which we manifest in this world with our body and our minds is therefore our private property. So if I build a business or create an invention or build a house, with my time and my body given to me by God, my mind given to me by God, any entity or third party that threatens, infringes, or attempts to compromise my ownership of my life and that which I manifest from it is infringing upon my rights. And I think that's what's so offensive to me about Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum notion that it's a good thing that you will have nothing and be happy. Frankly, there are many people in the world already who have nothing. It's the being happy with that part that seems to be the challenge. But we don't get our rights from groups, do we? We're born with those. And so this idea that we have to protect the rights, the, the rights of groups is really a fallacy. What rights are there for any group? They say gay rights. They say black rights, women's rights. But no woman has 
a right because she belongs to the group woman. She has a right because she's an individual human being born with rights. And our government can do one of two things. It can protect an individual's rights or it can violate them. So as individuals, I think we need to stop asking for permission to claim sovereignty over ourselves and our own lives. And we need to stop thinking about the political dynamics in our nation in terms of what groups are experiencing. For groups actually experience nothing, only individuals. We need to stop thinking of each other in terms of the immutable characteristics that they have. For we are greater than the sum of our parts, and our rights have nothing to do with our immutable characteristics, only everything to do with one immutable characteristic, that of being a human being. And time and time again, we see this advocacy from the left of minority rights, group rights, collective rights, workers' rights, while simultaneously we see the continued affront the continued attack against our Second Amendment rights. And frankly, one cannot claim to believe in individual rights, or group rights for that matter, for lack of a better term, since obviously I don't believe that there is such a thing as group rights. But one cannot claim to fight for human rights if one simultaneously rejects the notion that an individual has the right to defend himself or his neighbor from a violation of those rights. For if one does not believe in his own right to defend himself, then he does not believe in his neighbor's right to defend himself. And if we reject the notion that our lives belong to us, we as individuals, granted to us by God at birth, if we reject this notion of private property, beginning with the first thing we own, our own lives, and if we reject the notion that we have the right to protect that property, our life, our self-actualization, our attempt at fulfillment, if we reject the right to protect and live according to these rights and our will and our reason, then we can't claim to be advocates for any group because there has never been a group without an individual. A group is merely a collection of individuals. There can be individuals without groups, but there can be no group without individuals. And those who claim to fight for the rights of groups while simultaneously rejecting the sovereignty of individuals within those groups are really fighting for no rights at all. Instead, they are exploiting the vulnerabilities, the external leftist, Marxist, postmodernist sense of identity that any individual may get from the groups that he or she belongs. They are exploiting these groups, these dynamics, this rhetoric for political gain only. So be careful when you hear anyone, whether it's your neighbor, excuse me, whether it's your neighbor or AOC 
or Elizabeth Warren. Be careful when you hear any person claim to fight for the rights of a group because it demonstrates, whether they are sincere or not in their sentiment, a total misunderstanding of individual rights, a cognizant dissonance, a contradiction. Those who fight for groups do not fight for individuals, and there are no group rights without individual rights within those groups, folks. So next segment, we'll be talking about the American class versus the political class. Stay tuned, and we are going to conquer the Marxist, leftist, globalist takeover together. successful you become the more the leftists hate you the more self-esteem you have the more the leftists despise you the more truth you speak the more they lie about you the more freedom you demand the more they oppress you the more you rattle the cage they attempt to build around you the more they strike you down, persecute you, beat you, humiliate you, shame you, disenfranchise you, deplatform you, and silence you. But rise like the sun, always, and you will shine so bright that every American with even a semblance of America in his heart will gaze upon you like the star after which America was named and fly toward you like our founding fathers flocked toward the shores of America. They set sail in one direction, due west. And just as they went one direction to find America, so we as Americans must go one direction to reestablish it, to reawaken it, to make America great again. Upward, forward, toward self-actualization. The leftists believe in a Marxist philosophy of oppressor versus the oppressed. They believe that the entire world is based upon power dynamics of an exploitive exploitative party and the exploited, the exploiter and the exploited. Karl Marx believed that in a capitalist society, the property owners exploit the working class people and that in exchange for a wage, the working class people are rendered into a sort of serfdom or servitude to the property owning class. And this philosophy successfully pits individual citizens against one another. We've seen it time and time again. Everywhere Marxism has taken hold, everywhere revolution has taken place in the name of collectivist communism or socialism. And that's why the globalists embrace this Marxist philosophy because they know that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Many people attribute that quote to Abraham Lincoln and he said it, but I believe it was originally said by Jesus Christ.
And so if we are divided amongst ourselves, if we, the people, are convinced that all the injustices that we face and experience in life are a manifestation of our neighbor exploiting or oppressing us, are a manifestation of systemic injustice, a lack of equity, of racism, of bigotry, of one group versus the other, then we are divided and we are malleable and we are conquerable. But I tell you now that this notion of the oppressor versus the oppressed is not tenable. It's not defensible. It's not sustainable. It's not true. If you are facing financial hardship, it is not because Elon Musk is a billionaire. If you are struggling to pay your mortgage, if your car has been repossessed, it is not because your neighbor is successful that you are facing this hardship. The problems that we face in this nation, the inflation that we're facing, the bills that are impossible to pay, ever increasing in cost without income to match. This is a manifestation not of the oppressor versus the oppressed or the property owner versus the working class individual. This is a manifestation of the political class versus the American class. Now, the American class includes any individual American, regardless of their immutable qualities or socioeconomic status. From your neighbor, the electrician, to your friend, the realtor, to a big tech entrepreneur, a startup founder, an investor, whether a billionaire, a millionaire, or a regular working class citizen, you can be a part of the American class. But the political class is composed only of those in power in government or those empowered directly by government. The political class consists of our politicians and their cronies. It's often criticized as being capitalism and an injustice created by capitalism. These wealth discrepancies are claimed to be a result of greed and ownership and business. But the situation that we face today in the United States of America is not a manifestation of the injustices or inefficiencies of a capitalist system. It is the manifestation of the injustices of a political industrial complex. We have created a situation in which Americans are so focused on making ends meet, in which Americans are so preoccupied with living paycheck to paycheck that not only do they not have time to dedicate to their own children because both parents are working sometimes three jobs, but they don't have time to hold the political class accountable. Who has time to scour through hundreds and hundreds of pages of Hunter Biden emails to identify money laundering schemes in Ukraine? Not very many people. And so how is the political class ever supposed to be held accountable when it has created an environment such that no one has the time to pay attention to hold them to account? 
If we seek to establish a new justice, a new America, an American renaissance, a second American awakening, if this is our desire, then we have to rectify the injustice manifest in the political class versus the American class. Our political leaders call themselves Americans, yet they are not. They call themselves patriots, yet they fly all over the world and neglect their own communities struggling. They call themselves our representatives. They call us their constituents. Yet time and time again, they enact policies that weaken our dollars, that reduce the education of our children, that manipulate our children, change them, morph them, sculpt them. Time and time again, we see that the political class betrays the American class. We pay into it because we have no choice. You know, income tax didn't even exist in this country, I don't believe, until 1913. There may have been a little bit of an income tax at one point in time during the Civil War, briefly, I believe, but formally income tax, I don't believe, existed until 1913. In fact, I believe at the end of the 19th century, the Supreme Court ruled that an income tax was unconstitutional, and they had to amend the Constitution to legalize it. And slavery has been rendered illegal in the United States of America as a result of the Civil War's outcome. Yet if you're paying 40% of your income to the federal government, that means that Monday and Tuesday of a five-day work week, you are a slave. We have to take our lives back. If we want to make America great again, we have to be empowered to make ourselves great. If we seek self-actualization, we must be afforded the freedoms to do what it takes to self-actualize. I want you guys to check out Alex's War. I watched it this weekend. It was absolutely fabulous. It's in select theaters throughout the United States. Maybe they can pull it up on the screen, um, which theaters it's in, which cities it's in. But Alex's War was an absolutely outstanding documentary about Alex Jones and the history of InfoWars and what we're trying to do here, the story that we've gone through. And it sets, it sets us up for, for what's next, because this war isn't over yet, folks. Check out Alex's War, either on Apple TV, Venmo, or excuse me, Vimeo, a number of different streaming platforms, but take your family and friends to go see it in theaters if you live in any of these cities here. It's absolutely outstanding, well worth the money. I've watched it a couple of times now, and I'm sure it's not the last time I will take a look. is the enemy of the people, folks. I want you guys to call in because for the last few segments of this hour, we are going to be taking calls, answering questions, getting feedback. Make sure to dial 877-789-2539. I want to hear your thoughts, respond to your questions. But on the matter of the enemy of the people, the United States has had a number of enemies over the years, as young as our nation is. World War I, World War II, Civil War, we were our own enemy. And I would suggest that the enemy of 
the people is the leftist, and the leftists manifest itself in many different ways. We see leftism manifest in our educational institutions. We see it manifest in our private political press, corporate media. We see leftism manifest, of course, in our politicians and our government institutions. But really, we saw this begin with the advent of the Federal Reserve. When the Federal Reserve Bank was made, our money was privatized. And I'm not a constitutional expert or an intense scholar of the Constitution, but my understanding from the text is that the federal government is only given the power to coin money based off of precious metals. Many people think that the Federal Reserve is a federal institution because it has the word federal in it, but it is actually a private bank. And as yesterday, we were discussing how the federal government outsources the violation of our First Amendment rights to big tech platforms. It has outsourced the violation of our private property rights to the private bank that is the Federal Reserve. When the Federal Reserve was established, income tax was created. And over the next 100 years, we saw time and time again financial, economic, monetary collapse. In fact, less than two decades after the establishment of the Federal Reserve, there was a global world war and the stock market crash of 1929, which of course catalyzed the leftist New Deal under FDR. Let's play clip one from the next segment about what fractional reserve banking is. Banks are allowed to create money through a system called fractional reserve banking. Whenever you deposit money, the bank is legally required to keep a certain percentage of it somewhere safe, but can lend everything else. Here's an example based on a 10% reserve requirement. John goes to his bank and deposits $1,000. John's bank keeps $100 and lends the remaining $900 to Mike. There is now $1,900 in the financial system. John's $1,000 deposit and Mike's $900 loan. Next, Mike uses the $900 to buy a laptop from Karen. Then Karen deposits her $900 at another bank. The bank keeps 10% and lends the remaining $810 to George. There is now $2,710 in the system. John's $1,000 deposit, Karen's $900 deposit, and George's $810 loan. This goes on and on until John's initial $1,000 is turned into approximately $10,000. Believe it or not, commercial banks actually create more money than central banks. So there you have it, folks. With fractional reserve banking... Money can be created infinitely, and your money isn't in the bank. And this is how we have seen the drastic growth in size of the government and simultaneously the drastic reduction in the value of your dollar. Make sure to call in. We are going to be taking calls, 877-789-2539. I am excited to hear your feedback. And in the next section, we'll talk a little bit more about fractional reserve banking and then take some calls. Thank you, folks.
No taxation without representation, folks. Started a revolution over a T-tax. You know, the interesting thing about the establishment of the Federal Reserve is that for a time, our money was still backed by gold. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. But then upon coming off the gold standard, we saw the hyperinflation of our currency, which we've seen today. And the reason I wanted to bring this up in conjunction with the statement, no taxation without representation, is that really inflation is a tax. If you have $1,000 in the bank and you keep it there for a year, and next year everything is 10% more expensive, you may still have $1,000 in the bank, but you've lost the value of your money. You have been taxed even though nothing has been taken from you for everything you have has simply been cheapened. This is the menacing way in which the federal government taxes the American class, particularly the working class. No law has to be passed. No representation needs to be in place. The inflation tax, the printing of money done by a private bank at the behest of the federal government does not require the same political process as changing tax policy. And so we hear our politicians talk to us about tax reform. Oh, we should be increasing taxes on the rich or decreasing taxes on the poor. Yet if we do not tackle inflation, if we do not find a way to establish sound money, whether it's through a gold standard or a cryptocurrency, then we will never have solved the taxation problem. And we will never have solved the taxation without representation problem. And I know that Republicans and Democrats have argued over taxes for decade after decade. And I know that the leftists in the United States have framed conversations around taxes as only affecting those who are wealthy. The only people who complain about tax are people who are making so much money, it shouldn't even matter to them anyway. That's the idea. That's the zeitgeist. That's the way that the tax conversation has been branded by the leftists who constantly seek to increase the revenue of the federal government and expand their own power over every individual within our nation. But the fact of the matter is that income taxes have very little impact on the wealthy in our country. For the wealthiest among us don't even really make money off of income. They make money off of things like capital gains, selling assets, property, not actually salary. I don't even think Elon Musk paid income tax. I could be wrong about that, so don't quote me on that. Take that with a grain of salt. But I think he lives off of loans so he can avoid income tax. And good, to, good for him. I don't blame him. Why would he pay taxes unnecessarily? But when we talk about raising income tax rates, we're not talking about taxing the rich because the rich know and afford every loophole to every tax policy in the income tax realm. When we increase income taxes, we inevitably impact the middle class. Those who are wealthy enough to have a substantial income, yet not wealthy enough to transcend the tax policies and engage with the tax loopholes. But the real menacing tax that we are faced with is not any income tax or property tax or sales tax. Sure, we see these and we face these, but the real tax that we are faced with 
is the inflation tax. Because the government is able to sell treasuries to the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve is able to then print that money and give it to the government. And then the government has generated revenue for itself, wealth for itself, while simultaneously lowering the value of every dollar that every American has in savings, in their wallet, or invested. This is the menacing way in which the United States government has been robbing the American people for over 100 years, particularly since the 70s, but even before that. And if we don't get down to it, if we don't face this, if we don't awaken to this and demand that we have sound money in this country, there will be a reckoning so painful as to shake the very faith of every American in the future of our nation. If we don't want to face total financial collapse in this country, if we don't want to face a total currency collapse of our dollar, we have to admit that there's a problem. The first step to getting better is admitting there's a problem. And no one is talking about the fact that our very monetary system may indeed be unsustainable. Make sure you guys call in. In the next segment, we are going to be taking calls, questions, and feedback. 877-789-2539. Before we take calls, I do want to play clip number two of Milton Friedman talking about the Federal Reserve. Reserve Board today. Well, I have long been in favor of abolishing it. I think it, there is no institution in the United States that has such a high public standing and such a poor record of performance. What did Arthur Burns think of that? He didn't like that very much. But needless to say, I didn't hesitate to say it to him. <clears throat> Look, the Federal Reserve Board was established, the Federal Reserve System was established in 1914, started operation in 1914. It presided over a doubling of prices during World War I. It produced a major collapse in 1921. It had a good period from about 1922 to about 28. Then it, engaged, it, it undertook actions which led to the great, which led to a recession in 1929 and 30. And it converted that recession by its actions into the Great Depression. The major villain in the Great Depression was, in my opinion, unquestionably, uh, the Federal Reserve System. Since that time, it was largely, it presided over a doubling of prices during World War II. It financed the inflation of the 1970s. On the whole, it has a very poor record. It's done far more harm than good. So there's a lot of components that go into freedom. But ultimately, it's my belief and sort of the message that I've been sharing with you this morning that the primary value in freedom and purpose of freedom is that it empowers every individual to discover who they truly are, live according to who they are, and do what it takes without violating the rights of others to reach their potential, to reach self-actualization. 
And our freedoms aren't just those delineated in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. But there's financial freedom too. Freedom not to be indebted or enslaved or hypertaxed. And there's also the freedom afforded us by our good health. Poor health, discomfort, and pain can be a tyranny in and of themselves. And that's why I want to talk to you about bodies, which is the perfect answer to whole body support. It's back in stock at 25% off. So used as a medicinal herb for thousands of years, turmeric is one of the most studied ingredients known today. Paired with black pepper, bodies is turmeric is a turmeric supplement that takes advantage of the power of turmeric with over 95% of its active ingredients. Because turmeric contains some of the most powerful antioxidants, we decided to pair it with powerful ingredients, including five different herbs and extracts for the ultimate boost for you and your family. This product, Bodies, can help you with joint support, mobility support, flexibility support, and inflammation support so that you can have the freedom of comfort and good health so you can live each day without the distraction of pain, without the compromise of pain, you can live the life that you want each day. Make sure to call in 877-789-2539. Calls at the beginning of the next segment. My name is Chase Geyser. I am your guest host today on The American Journal. Check me out on Twitter at RealChaseGeyser, R-E-A-L-C-H-A-S-E-G-E-I-S-E-R, or One American podcast.com keep calling in 877-789-2539 we've got a lot of callers in the queue but today i want to start with matt in new york you've been on hold for almost 20 minutes let's talk yo what's up brother how you doing all right hey man i'm doing good how are you doing yeah good good i just uh want to tell everyone uh they wouldn't make this move if they didn't control both sides of the narrative everyone pay attention because our grass is high and it's full of snakes we are literally in the pit of snakes, and instead of coming up with a plan to get out, we are admiring their pretty colors, deciding which one of them is the biggest. So the frontline doctors, everyone's got to really watch, because all they're doing is telling you precisely what these, these uh, this poison did in the animal testing, and that's very scary. But they should have been out ahead of this, and they should have been yelling from the mountaintops about how disastrous the animal testing was. And then if you look into this research, how in the heck did anyone think that this was any good for anybody? I did a simple Google research, and you just look at the animal studies, the same stuff they're putting inside everybody, it's doing precisely what it's designed to do. Are you referring to the vaccine specifically or just pharmaceuticals in general? I'm talking about the, the, the death shot, the mRNA technology. Yeah. The mRNA technology... Donald J. Trump could have done a, a Google research and looked at the animal testing and seen that this is not good for consumption for any living organism, okay? So everybody watch. These front lines, they, they got both sides of the narrative. Even the guys that are acting like they're our buddies, they, they got them all. So, and then January 6th, what a debacle that was. I mean, how do you not have a lookout, man, at the place where you're going with all those people down there when Mr. Alex Jones is always screaming, false flag this, false flag that. How the heck could you not have a, a lookout guy down there? And how could you march all those people into that setup? You know what I mean? 
I mean, mm-hmm. he, he proclaims to be the freaking tip of the spear. I call him now the tail ass of the spear. Would you like to respond to that? Well, I think that the evidence shows that over over the past several decades, Alex Jones has been nothing but an advocate for the truth. But this is the nature of war, and I think that InfoWars is the right term for this program and this network. The nature of war is that things get tough. People become suspicious of their neighbor. People seem corrupt. There's betrayal. There's treason. But I don't think for a minute that Alex Jones isn't working with the interest of the American people in mind. Now, I'm biased. I'm sitting here on InfoWars. I'm friends with the staff and the crew. I ate a taco with them this morning. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But I have a pretty good intuition about people. And I don't believe for a minute that there's any motive of this network or its hosts other than to enlighten and save America. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get things right or uh, uh, we don't make mistakes or we don't fail. We don't lose battles. This is a war. So we lose battles sometimes. We lose people. We lose guys. But um, I, don't, I don't think that there's any doubt in my mind where the loyalty is, where the effort is, and what the intention is. However, I do appreciate your feedback in terms of the animal studies on these vaccines. Obviously, we've been exposed to uh, experimental medication. It's not the first time that people have been exposed to uh, pharmaceuticals uh, for the sake of profit of these companies uh, at the risk of the health of the patients and consumers. We saw this in the 1980s with hemophilia medicines that the pharmaceutical companies knew were contaminated with hepatitis and HIV, yet they continued to administer these medications to children all over America. 10,000 hemophiliacs died. The Ryan White story is a movie about it. It's a famous story, but thanks for your call and your feedback, Matt. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Let's take Judy from Florida next. Thanks for waiting so long. I'm excited to hear from you. You're live. Hi, Chase. Um, I didn't know about you until a couple days ago, and because uh, I, I watch the American Journal Monday and Tuesdays a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely like breaking my heart listening to you because you know I just look at the plight, particularly of. Um, American men of European ancestry, and just the brain trust, uh, those that understood the brilliance of our founders mm-hmm. and what was accomplished that made America great, uh, just how it all has been perverted by the left, by, by just the satanic left. And um, I was just thinking about, uh, it used to be a subject that was talked about widely, and then it just went by the wayside. Um, uh, LaRouche Political Action Committee, which I used to be somewhat affiliated with when they talked about it, was Glass-Steagall, mm. the Glass-Steagall Law, which basically in, I think it was 98 or 99, Bill Clinton um, uh, had it eradicated from uh, being law uh, by publicizing, uh, I guess it was Citibank, I don't know, Citicorp, um, but basically it moved, it, it took the separation of the commercial and investment banking uh, away. So our money, you know, just became more and more widely used in the casino uh, of of life. And uh, there was no protections left. And outside of something like the glass legal law being re-implemented or like a debt jubilee, 
I mean, these the, the, the whole system of banking, I guess going up to the Bank of International Settlements, they know what they've done to uh, impoverish the world. And, we're, and, and America's like the gem. I've always looked at it as the gem. I mean, I have uh, protested outside of the Federal Reserve. Um, I know how how horrible the whole system is without even completely understanding it all. I mean, I understand fractional sure. reserve lending, but it's just it's killing us. And and this is the, <laughs> this is the thing. We were in actual real time being murdered. And it's like what happened in Kentucky and uh, Western Virginia and parts of West Virginia we don't think, you know, it's never discussed all of the geoengineering, the harp technology, and why was all this deluge occurring? I mean, it, it, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of warfare. It's not just the, uh, the vaccines, which, which Mike Adams, he made this, this wonderful quip about, uh, you know, everybody's dying of ABV, anything but vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the new phenomenon that we're faced with. Anything but vaccines is causing these excess deaths. And it's just so we live in this weird land, and it's like listening to a young man like you, it just it breaks my heart because you're part of the brain trust. And, and you know, we're in, in, I live in America. I love America. Um, I'll say one other thing. There is my former in-laws had a business. Midi's Lumberteria, which went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Judy, you've got about 15 seconds before we have to go to break. Absolutely. They went bankrupt, and they were a, a lumber and hardware business, and it's now a Chinese grocery store. But they were in business for like 45 years or so. They built county in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Thank you, Judy, for your thoughts on that. You're absolutely right. They're being robbed, compromised, and stolen from. More in the next segment. Stay on hold if you've called in. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Welcome back to The American Journal. Make sure you check out InfoWarsStore.com. This segment, we're going to be taking more calls. And I want to talk to PT from Michigan. You're on the air, PT. How are you, Kay? I'm great. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for waiting. Uh, not at all. Not at all. Hey, um, I have a question. Um, mm-hmm. How do you view uh, abortion? Uh, is, uh, are you pro-life? I mean, I, I should just let you answer the question. Is it murder in your eyes? How do you view it? I believe that an unborn child has the same human rights as an adult human being. So I'm anti-abortion. Right, but do you, but do you categorize it as murder? Because, listen, when those two blobs of protoplasm meet... There's a new DNA form, and that's an individual with individual rights and liberties, as you were speaking to so eloquently before. Thank you. So, my, you're welcome. So, my question is, I mean, do you would you categorize it? No, I mean, a, a doctor that knows, or a, whether he knows or not, but uh, these abortion mill doctors um, that just make a huge profits in living, and then they sell the body parts, not them, but you know, the system, sure. um, is it murder? Is it murder to you? And, and I, I have a reason I'm asking you that, and obviously, but, I mean, the way I view it, and um, what are your thoughts? Do you call it murder? I mean, in your mind, mm-hmm. whether, you're speak, whether you would speak it right now or not, is it murder? Yes. 
I, uh, I believe that abortion is murder. However, I don't believe that those doctors should be prosecuted if what they're doing is legal. Now, I think it should be illegal, but if it's legal, I don't think they should be prosecuted as murderers, though I do believe the act itself is murder. Okay, thank you for that. The reason I ask you that is because, you know, um, I'm, I'm very much involved. And, you know, there's so many way, ways that we could go to try to battle this system and this assault on our liberties, our family, uh, our family units. I mean, open borders, what they're doing in schools. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. But my, my, um, my purpose is, uh, is, this, uh, is abortion. But beyond that, the reason I ask you that is because if Trump knows, knowingly, that, or, or whether he knows or not, but listen, a high school uh, kid that I coached collapsed on the ice after taking a shot and had a heart attack. Healthiest, coolest kid in the world. The jabs are murder. Don't say the word vaccine, Chase, please. It's not. It's, it's an experimental murder jab. It transfects the cells. It attacks the, the white blood cells. It attacks the immune system, all by design. So my yeah. point is, listen, we're, yeah. we're yeah. all hypocrites. Hypocritical in some way, well, but I cannot support him. We've, we've got, we've him. got a. Here's, there's, it's, it's more complicated than that. I appreciate your your position on the matter because I do agree that there are some serious problems with these vaccines, uh, and I know that they changed the definition of vaccine to accommodate these products that the pharmaceutical companies are making. But it's not really. It, it, yes, it's murder if it's a forced inoculation, perhaps. If you're, if you're forcefully um, um, applying a pharmaceutical or a drug to somebody that results in their death, then I guess you could say that's involuntary manslaughter in the least. But, but in the event that people are voluntarily taking this, this drug, it sort of falls in the right to try category, right? And I understand those who are critical of President Trump for his uh, association and his basically um, – Operation Warp Speed, which catalyzed the creation of these vaccines to begin with. I understand that critique, but you have to keep in mind that throughout the entirety of Trump's presidency, as well as throughout the entirety of his campaign in 2015 and 16, he was always an advocate of right to try. Okay. And so these drugs were always experimental. The difference is when the government comes in and says, if you want to go to work, you have to take this drug. If you don't want to lose your job, you have to take this drug. If you want to fly from state to state, you have to take this drug. If you want to come into our country or leave our country, you have to take this drug. That's different. And so I think that, yes, it's possible that Donald Trump could have been more prudent and more aware of the science, spent more time on the science, while these drugs were being developed and tested, and he could have been more cautious about it. He could still be more cautious about it. It's possible that that's the case. But you have to keep in mind that these mandates, this tyranny from these pharmaceutical companies is not something that came from the Trump administration or was advocated by Trump himself. Now, if people disagree on the vaccines, I think that they're problematic. I'm never going to take one again. I took the J&J &J vaccine because my wife and I had a premature baby and we were worried that she would get sick, even though I know that less than a thousand kids have died, but she was many weeks premature. And so we said, all right, we'll take the J&J &J one. We'll take the risk, um, you know, just for the sake of trying to do our best to figure it out. And I regret having taken it. I didn't have any side effects, but in retrospect, I wish I hadn't, because if I had known how forceful they were going to be, the government was going to be and these private institutions were going to be about these vaccines, 
then just on principle, I wouldn't have taken it. But we, we got really early access before it got weird in terms of policy. But the point that I want to make about Trump was Trump was doing everything he could to end the pandemic as quickly as possible. And he was basically cut off from power right in the middle of this whole fiasco. Now, I know the vaccines were done before he left office, but they didn't really reach the entirety of the public until after Biden had been inaugurated. And these mandates certainly didn't take place until Biden was president. So you can, you know, wish that Donald Trump hadn't catalyzed the creation of these vaccines, but I don't think he's culpable for these outcomes that we're seeing. And I'm really sorry, PT, to hear about um, uh, your athlete. Um, as a coach, that must have been very hard for you to witness. I hope that your athlete's okay. But we have to take a step back and say, all right, who's really responsible for this? Is Oppenheimer responsible for Hiroshima? I mean, he didn't drop the bomb, but he invented the bomb, right? And so, yes, Trump played a role in the creation of these vaccines, but it was only the leftists who played the role in the violation of your rights and the forceful inoculation, inoculation of you and your children. Next up, we've got Margie in Minnesota, and you've just got about 30 seconds or so, and we're going to have a break soon. Margie, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, see, I just converted my stock against uh, my, my guy's uh, wishes that I was being foolish that the dollar could collapse. Mm-hmm. And, and I, today I'm going to put it into gold and silver, and I want your opinion on that. Yeah, great question. Okay, so first of all, I am not the right person to ask for financial advice. I am not a financial advisor. I just have my own opinions. So take everything that I say with a grain of salt. I and will. The answer to your question, my opinion, is that the dollar is definitely going to collapse. But no one ever knows when. So the Bible says that the end will come like a thief in the night. Jim Morrison famously saying the future is uncertain and the end is always near. So I think that the inevitable, I think that the collapse of the dollar eventually is inevitable, but never underestimate the ability for the political class to kick the can. I couldn't tell you if it's going to happen next month, next week, or in 50 years. So I don't know what the answer is in terms of whether or not you should sell your stock. If I had a bunch of extra money myself, I would probably be investing in companies like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and defense contractors because war seems to be perpetual and those businesses will make money even when a currency collapses because there will always be conflict. But I don't know what to tell you in terms of uh, investment advice. I don't think that you're going to lose money on your gold, and stand, your gold and silver, but I'm not sure that you're going to see significant gains either. You'll have to talk to a financial advisor that you trust, that's reasonable, that's not woke, that isn't brainwashed. Find somebody that, that you really trust uh, and, and ask them for that advice. Thank you so much for your call. Next up, we are going to take more calls. And in the next hour, we have a very special guest joining us. Mr. Matt Couch. You may have heard of him. He was banned from Twitter as at real Matt Couch. He runs an awesome website called the DC Patriot. And I'm looking forward to speaking with him and taking more of your calls. It is the American Journal. And 
today we are taking calls and allowing American listeners and viewers to make their own entry in the American Journal. I'm going to try something a little bit different. I want to take two callers at once who have a similar topic here. We're going to take Jefferson from Virginia and JR from New York. Both want to talk about the Federal Reserve. Jefferson, why don't you say your piece first, and let's hear what JR thinks about that. Go ahead. Hey, Chase. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, Edward Mandel House made it very clear that when they set up the Federal Reserve, the whole point of it was to enslave Americans in a system where they didn't realize what was going on. The Cantillon effect uh, basically creates an aristocracy of corruption that benefits from getting the money first while we get it last. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think about that, Jr.? Well, I think it's correct. It's scientific tyranny, what these guys are doing. It's a scientific approach, a religious approach, because they are a very religious people. They worship Satan, and there's plenty of proof. And the one who has the best research in the, for all this stuff that's all documented is David Icke in the book The Trigger and the book The Answer. If you just go in and look up Rothschild, Trump, you can see the connections. And if you still— tr if you still trust Trump, after reading that book, you have cognitive dissonance and you have basically Stockholm Syndrome uh, because he lays out all the evidence against the Trump case. But yes, they use the finance system against us because they are into occultism. They know that mercury represents finance and the, the caduceus of mercury. So they, they use finance against us because it's an energy and they know that they can control people. It's always been an information war. Um, these people are satanic. If you really want the information, look up David Icke's books. Get David Icke's books, The Answer and The Trigger. Go in the index, look up Trump. You'll see all of Trump's dirty connections. Just like Matt said, both parties are, are compromised. The, the voting system is broke. I don't even know why people are trying to vote anymore. If they stole the presidency, they're going to steal any election. It, your local election will be stolen. So we're having the wool pull over, pulled over our eyes because everyone, nobody wants to admit the truth is that it's us who's going to save ourselves. And it's always been an information war, if you just let me get this point across. Since early, very early with the, the, um, the Council of Nicaea in the year 300, when they basically removed a lot of books from the Bible and consciously made people go in the direction of interpreting Scripture literally. And so because of the literal interpretation of Scripture, people have an unconscious will to bring the Messiah back which is a destructive, like you have to destroy the earth. And that's the same thing as the Sabbatean Francus, which David Icke goes into in his books. They want this Messiah to come back. So they believe in practicing as much evil as possible. Right, to in bring a about the apocalypse. Way. So, so, so that's the thing. It's a Christian dispensation. People want that also because they think that Jesus is coming back to save you, when really it's a mystical interpretation. Like in a, I think it's Paul said, the Christ within the hope of glory. It has nothing to do with someone coming in the clouds. It's coming inside of your heart, awakening out of your own will. Yeah. So, and all right, all right. JR, so, st stand by for a second. That's an interesting point. So, because Jefferson said that the Federal Reserve is designed to collapse, I have two questions for him. First of all, uh, does that line up with the unconscious will of the people to bring about an apocalypse? And second of all, how could the aristocracy benefit from the collapse of the Federal Reserve? Are, are they not dependent on it too? Uh, the question's for me. Uh, no, they don't uh, have a problem. When, when the system collapses, they get a jubilee. They get to retain title to what they own. We don't get to take it from them unless we're willing to go to war with them. So it, it's a way of—it's like monopoly. It's a corrupted monopoly system. Fiat currency allows them to, to gain false title to all the assets that matter in the world, and they don't have to pay any real money for it. 
They don't have to give up any gold for land. Yeah. Okay. Well, they they Thanks for calling in. Thanks for your, for your feedback. That makes a lot of sense. It's an interesting notion that the Federal Reserve may be designed to collapse. And I also appreciate uh, JR's feedback that, um, you know, there's sort of a zeitgeist of a, of a desire to bring about the apocalypse because then there is a sense that maybe there will be a savior. That's an interesting notion that I haven't considered. I'll consider, continue to, to consider that. But next up, I do want to talk to uh, Clown Car from New York City. She wants, he or she wants to talk about CERN. Well, I identify my pronouns are in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So, yeah, I identify as that. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to know, have you ever seen, there's an episode of Star Trek, like an original episode, where Marto Recontaban, whatever his name is, the island guy, he talks about eugenesis and how they're going to eliminate all humans off the Earth. I can't remember. I've seen those, the 1968 through 71 series, but I can't remember that particular that's episode. And, that, and that's why a lot of people haven't seen it. I had an old videotape. Somehow, like, a Star Trek was running on Channel 11 or something, and I'm watching this episode. And he comes out and he says, I think he says 2020 even. Like, I was telling the guys, I sent them the thing real quick, hoping they could whip it up real quick. But he does a little speech in there that is really beyond what we're living today. And I was... Who, write, who wrote that stuff? See, that's the other part. These people who are writing this stuff, they, they are eugenicists. Yeah, yeah. All well, this sci-fi stuff, all this wacky stuff that you thought could ever happen, you know, liquid nanny, graphite, and your body controlling your neural link and all of this. Man, that can't happen. It's happening. Yeah, science fiction... Uh, has proven time and time again to be more prophecy than fiction. Uh, I agree with you. And one of the things I love about the original Star Trek series, not to be too dorky or boring for the audience, but before special effects became so good and movie production became so spectacular, you really had to have good writing, otherwise the show would fail or the content would fail. And that's why I actually like the 1968, I believe, um, uh, series of Star Trek is because, you know, the, the costumes were hokey, the set was hokey, and the special effects were, were hokey, but the writing was very, very good. And I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, a lot of these predi predictions that we see in science fiction uh, wind up becoming true. I think that it was Aldous Huxley in A Brave New World. I, th I believe he predicted the existence of a television before the television was invented. I could be wrong about that, but there's all sorts of examples, uh, regardless of that specific anecdote of science fiction writers really uh, foreseeing the future. And it makes sense too, because frankly, the future isn't something that we are subject to, but it's something that we create, right? As individuals and as people. And in order to create something that doesn't exist, you first have to envision it and then manifest it, right? whether it's your own self-actualization or an invention. So, yeah, it makes sense that, um, that, uh, uh, that science fiction has been prophetic time and time again. What do you think? Hong Kong to that. But listen, do you think that Spielberg and Kubrick faked the moon landing or what? I, let me, let me uh, uh, answer this question with a disclaimer that I have done very little research in the moon landing conspiracy, so I am not knowledgeable in this space. So for those who are listening, who have looked into this, please don't be frustrated with my ignorance, but I'll answer the question. I think that we landed on the moon, but I'm open to the idea that the footage is fake. I just, I think that if we didn't land on the moon, the Russians would have called us out. Gotcha. 
you know. So it was a psyop to psych out the Russians by creating a film that we landed there, but with Spielberg and, and Kubrick. I don't, I don't know if it was still Spielberg or Kubrick. I'm just skeptical that you can live stream with microwave technology from the moon to the earth in 1963 or whatever year it was. What year was it that we landed on the moon, allegedly? 62? I, I just know that they faked the moon landing because Kubrick actually has a video as he's dying that he tells the world. Like yeah. a, month, a month before he dies, he made a video. All I know is that if I was Stanley Kubrick, I wouldn't be interested in doing any government work. <laughs> I'd rather make a great movie, you know? <laughs> But thanks but, uh, so much I for your call. To, I wanted to invite you this uh, Sunday, to August 7th, out to uh, 27 State Street for the Beast Boy event. I'll see you over there, all right? All right, man. Take care. <laughs> great calls. Great calls, guys. I, I really liked um, uh, having two callers at the same time, and I, I really appreciate uh, Clown Car. I think we have time for one more call before we go to break and have our special guest, Matt Couch, on in the next segment. I want to talk to Jay from New Jersey. What's up, Jay? Uh, hello. Hello. I'm trying to. Okay, one second. I'm putting the. Uh, we got Jay live on the on. air. He's 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 uh yeah, he's in the drive-in at, at Whataburger right now. <laughs> what are you having? <laughs> no, no, no. I just wanted to. I, I just got back from the moon and uh, I was a lot lighter up there and uh, so I come down here and I started taking Alex's uh, diet seven there and. Uh, and I've been really busy um, running around to the facilities, if you know what I'm saying. And that, that, as a truck driver, it's kind of rough. But that was, I take all of his uh, supplements. I probably take about 20 of them, uh, 10 of 15 or uh, 20 of them. But um, I was wondering, Alex, I mean, you guys, Alex and all talk the truth mostly, you know, and I appreciate it all. But the question is, um, you know, at, with um, Pelosi going over there to China and Taiwan, and, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson last night laid it all out where Taiwan, they can, uh, their ships can get shut down. And, and yeah, we've got to, we've got to go to a, break in, in nine seconds. But my theory on yeah. the whole Taiwan visit is that she's just going to get a new face. Uh, stay online. We're going to have Matt Couch next. <laughs> the operating system of the Saxe Coburg Gotha families, which is the oldest bloodline of European bloodlines in the world in which all European bloodlines agree are their progenitors, going back to their founder, Vlad the Impaler. Count Dracula is the recognized head of the entire dynasty. His Royal Highness Prince Charles, who can trace his ancestry back to Romania's dark and distant past. The genealogy shows that I'm descended from Vlad the Impaler, you see. So I do have a bit of a stake in the country. As it were. And so this house of the dragon that flies the dragon banner, the Dracul, rule the planet. Just like Revelation tells us the dragon. And it's allied with the other dragon, the Chicoms. And its goal is feudalism, but with a high-tech overlay. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned, we don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. And if you go back to the Aztecs, 
or the ancient Chinese or the ancient Europeans or the ancient Africans. Everybody behaved the same. You had cycles and you would get cycles of, of society building up, developing technology, agrarian systems, developing towns and cities, and then the cults take over, the high priests take over, and they always use environmental reasons for the reason that they have to dominate and demand human sacrifices and control over the public. So the Illuminati is basically just an extension of the mystery religion system, the whole type of philosophy. Yes, it was a way of hoarding knowledge and power to a few special people. And how do they hoard the knowledge? Uh, well, when I say knowledge, some of the knowledge is pseudo-knowledge, and some of the knowledge is actually uh, scientific knowledge, which enabled, for instance, Christopher Columbus to be certain that he could sail to um, sail across across the Atlantic and hit land. He was associated with the Knights Templars, which is one of these secret societies associated with the Illuminati. So, so you've got different types of knowledge, but some of the knowledge is actually bogus it's just it's just claimed so that they can get people to join whatever mystery religion they're they're trying to offer and the UN and others at the Club of Rome in the 1960s early 1960s said we're gonna bring back the superstition of the pagans and we're gonna teach people they're bad and teach them they're evil and teach them that they have to pay and teach them that old people have to die and babies have to be killed because there's too many people so that we have a barbarous civilization that's the opposite of the Renaissance and Christianity, but one that is kill and be killed. And we believe this is the natural system of survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, and so we're gonna bring this back. And that's the real system we're transitioning to now when you hear about a transition. So they've decided to get rid of that and replace it with the old authoritarian model of barbarism that has the exact same Features, no matter what color you are or where your ancestors came from, humans act the same in these cycles over and over again. The satanic rituals that they carry out, which are horrendous traditional uh, rituals, uh, blood sacrifices, requires um, a certain level of, of insanity and disassociative ability. If you were a normal sane person and you had to participate in the higher level Illuminati rituals, you'd probably go crazy. It's absolutely essential that they, uh, they maintain the bloodlines. These are religious sacraments to these people of power over you. And they don't like the fact you're straight and strong. They don't like the fact you're good. They don't like the fact you're hardworking. It's the American Journal, and I am very pleased to announce that we have a very special guest today, one of my best friends, one of the greatest info warriors among us, Matt Couch. Matt, welcome to the American Journal. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Chase. Honored to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So what's going on with you, man? How's everything going? Uh, man, uh, no pun intended with the bandana kicking like a pack of ninjas this morning, buddy. Just... Uh, pushing content out there, you know, just having a good time and uh, got, got a midterm to to get to, man. We've got a midterm to win to try to at least uh, got to get some of these monsters out of office. Yeah, I think that we're going to clean house uh, of these of these rhinos. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, 
uh, see the outcome of these midterms. And I hope that my, my, my biggest concern is that we sweep in the midterms and we become complacent, right? After we win, we always seem to take it for granted and coast. And we have to uh, uh, fight until the very end and just be ruthless, I think, in our approach to saving this country. What do you think? I think that's got to be the MO. We have to we have to stop pulling punches. We have to stop playing nice once we get power. We have to be able to go in and say, hey, look, these people aren't your friends. They're never going to accept you. And, and we've got to stop worrying about what the media thinks. That, to me, is the biggest problem with the Republican Party, with the conservative party, uh, even libertarians, for that matter. Everyone's worried about media perception instead of doing the right thing. And I think that's really what's what's tanked the country the last you know, a uh, year and a half. And then, of course, before Trump, you know, it, it was disastrous as well. So I, I think you're right. We've got to go in. We've got to go full bore. And they've got to get some things done and show the American people that they're actually going to do what they said they were going to do for a change. Yeah. And speaking of the media, obviously, with the advent of the Internet, over the last 10 years, the entire playing field has changed dr dramatically. And we've seen this sort of transition from legacy media or corporate media, as I like to refer to as the private political press, we've seen this transition of consumers, viewers, listeners, subscribers from this legacy media to independent outlets like Infowars or independent influencers like the Ben Shapiro's or the Matt Couch's or uh, One American Podcast, for example. And so what do you think um, uh, uh, the future is for, for legacy media? And what's the story behind um, uh, the DC Patriot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, people are really getting tired of, you know, the, the, the mainstream media with the legacy media. When you look at, you know, Fox News, Newsmax, One American News, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone, even those are the conservative outlets. If we will, if we'll go that route, right? You've obviously got CNN, you know, MS, you know, NBC, you've got that group as well, CNBC, and then the, and then the mainstream folks of ABC and CBS, NBC. Everyone has the same, you know, from a news side of things, has the same 15 people on for 15 hours, mm -hmm. basically parroting the same things, pitching aside, right? The American people are tired of that. The people that watch InfoWars are tired of that. The people that go to the DC Patriot are tired of that. Uh, and I think that's what gives a unique perspective here. People have to start supporting independent media to get the truth because they're not getting it. When you turn on the television sets, you're not getting the truth anymore from these outlets. And I think people are slowly but surely waking up to that, but it's a real problem because, you know, uh, I, I mean, uh, a good friend of mine, he's on Info, Patrick Cowley comes on quite a bit on this program as well. Mm -hmm. He calls them normies, right? And when you try to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't, who only watches the mainstream type media, they are clueless to the, to the subjects they'll find on this network or the subjects they'll find at the DC Patriot. And it's really like trying to teach a, teach someone how to read Braille is, is like how I like to say it on getting them you know, adapted to learning something new. They're stunned yeah. uh, in, in that realm of things, Chase. Well, and I think that um, you sort of hit the nail on the head with your response. Uh, I also think that one of the biggest mistakes that normies make, or just people in general, is there's this notion that there's news and then there's opinion, right? So there's like the op-eds that you read in the newspaper and then there's the real news, right? And people think that there's a difference but I would argue that there's no such thing as news that isn't opinion news. And so it's not a matter of trying to find where the objective news is. It's a matter of trying to find whose opinion you trust, right? So 
who, what is driving the narrative at Fox or what is driving the narrative at the New York Times, right? Or Infowars, right? And you look at those and you look at those special interests and the different variables at play and you can determine whether or not the information you're getting is uh, likely genuine or earnest, even if it's not, regardless of whether it's accurate, is it actually coming from an honest place? And that's one of the things I really like about your platform, the DC Patriot, is I know that it's, you know, it's it's the news with your perspective and your opinion and your views, but I also know that you're not bought and paid for and you have no reason to deceive me because you're not beholden to any special interest. No, that, that's exactly true. We, we we have a spin on it. You know, it's we're reporting the news, but we also will give our opinions. Our opinions are normally based on our thoughts. You know, we put God, country first. We believe in the Constitution. And, and when you base a news organization, you know, based on what the Constitution says, not feelings, right? Mm-hmm. You base it on facts, the Constitution, putting God first, you know, putting your country first. It, it comes across as that way. And it's sad that we live in a society where that is insulting to so many of the populace because they literally cannot take the truth. They can't handle facts. They, they deal in feelings. They need safe spaces and snuggle puppies. And it makes it very difficult when you're reporting the news. And the other side of things, the people that do agree with folks like you and I, um, they, uh, many of them, you know, I've said this, you know, I think 90%, it's a high number, are scared to offend someone. They don't want to deal with a colleague at work. They don't want to deal with offending a friend or a family member. So converting them to what we do at the D.C. Patriot has, has been tough, but it's slowly but surely coming around. And and I, but I think it, it's needed. You know, there. You know, uh, Jim Hoft, another good friend of mine, you know, runs the Gateway Pundit, does a fabulous job over there as well. But the the, the point I'm trying to make is, is if Americans that are watching this program, conservatives who realize how corrupt the mainstream media is, they, and they do by by massive numbers, Chase. But the problem there is a problem. They're not, they are not uh, transitioning over and supporting independent media. They're still turning on Fox News for six hours a day. They're still mm-hmm. turning on the mainstream media things. And that's a huge problem uh, because you're supporting people that are, that are basically backed by big pharma, corporations, big tech. All of those people that I just mentioned are the ones that are keeping people like Fox News and CNN on the air. Uh, you know, no one, you know, we are, you know, we, we have no, I don't even know how to say this. I mean, we are literally, uh, you know, uh, as as put together with duct tape and and uh, integral moving parts as we can be, Chase, over where we're at. We have we have no corporate sponsors or anything like that. It's just some some folks trying to get the truth out and do the right thing. Absolutely. So speaking of opinions, I do want to take a call from uh, O'Brien in Maryland uh, who has a question of who is our biggest enemy. So uh, uh, O'Brien, you've got about 30 seconds and then we'll give uh, Matt a chance to respond. And if there's time for me, I'll respond too. Go ahead. Are you there? I think we're gonna have to move on to the next caller. Let's take uh, Shelby from Denver. See if we can get a good connection. Shelby, you are on the air. Okay, we lost two callers this time around. The feds are on to us and cutting off the phone lines. Matt, what is next for uh, uh, for America? Do you think? How do you think things are going to look uh, from from the time period between? 2022, these midterms and the presidential election in 2024. That's what I'm primarily interested in. I, I think it's going to be dicey, to be honest with you. I mean, I think we're going to take the House and the Senate back. 
I think the radical, you know, leftists are going to do what they do. It's amazing. You haven't seen a lot of Antifa, right, in the last uh, 18 months. You haven't seen a lot of Black Lives Matter in the last 18 months. But make no mistake about it, you know, Mr. Kaiser, if if we take back the House and the Senate, uh, I'm, I think early spring of 23, as we start seeing candidates announced, you're going to see these groups rear their ugly heads. And I think it's going to look like, uh, you know, the George Floyd 2020 summer. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective. It's going to be um, a, a very intense uh, a time. It looks like we do have one more caller. And let's try Gary from Pennsylvania. Can we get Gary on the air? Oh, he's talking to Gary. Sorry, producer's still talking to him, but we'll uh, we'll get him on as soon as as soon as that's fired up and ready. Now, do you think that um, we're lined up for a repo a republic? Okay, Gary, are you there? Oh, break. Excuse me, guys. We're going on a break. We'll be right back with the next segment. We'll take some more calls. Make sure you call in 877-789-2539. Again, with Matt Couch, our very special guest and my close friend. Founder, operator, and editor of the DC Patriot. Make sure you call in at 877-789-2539. We are taking calls this hour. If interested parties have questions, comments, or want to get feedback from either Matt or myself. So Matt, tell me about when you started the DC Patriot. What year did it begin and what was that like for you? Yeah, we started it uh, like February of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly, I'll tell you why I started it is because I was, uh, you know, doing a lot of investigations. I'll just leave it at that. Doing a lot of investigations on different things around the country. And uh, I honestly, we were putting out all this information and people were like, we, you know, they wanted somewhere to go to get a lot of the information. That's kind of how it became, you know, it started. And then also, um, you know, there's this lovely term that people uh like to use for anyone who takes donations to do anything, investigate, work, report. You know, the the uh, the boobirds or trolls would like to call them. They call them grifters. And so I just got tired of it. My my team of investigators got tired of it. So we literally just launched the DC Patriot and went kind of full bore into it. And now it's hard to believe we're getting. I think we're approaching close to seven thousand articles now, Chase, in three years. Wow, that's just a, a an incredible amount of content. Um, you've been quite prolific. I really enjoy the content that uh, that you post. You always have an awesome perspective on uh, the breaking stories as they come about. I do want to uh, uh, take a call from Taylor in the Twin Cities. Uh, she's got some uh, questions about what solutions that we can attempt to save this country. We'll take Taylor's feedback. Matt, I'll let you respond first, and then I'll take it from there. Go ahead, Taylor. You're live. Looks like we're having a hard time connecting again. We'll get that buttoned up. So, Matt, tell me about your censorship on Twitter and what happened there and how that impacted your business. You've Across all platforms, you've had at least a million followers. I know you had over 500,000 on Twitter itself just alone, and you were recently uh, censored in ND platform there. What happened? Yeah, Twitter was uh, was insane. Before the, uh, the January 6th debacle, I was close to 800,000. Then they they just basically chopped the hell out of the platform, if that makes sense. It went from that to like 400, built it back up to like 650 again, and then got banned in December of uh, of 20. I guess it was December of 21, middle middle of December of last year. Uh, got the uh, the permanent ban, like President Trump and many others have. Alex Jones, you know, I'm not Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, anybody, Laura Loomer, you know, friends of mine, anyone who basically has a voice that they want to silence, you know, they've came for on that platform. Uh, very blessed to that I was diversified, Chase. You know, I've got, uh, you know, about 150,000 followers on Parler, about 
you know, 700,000 on Gitter and, you know, across the platforms, it's several million now. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 you know, I'm banned on YouTube, uh, banned on Twitter. But I've got a thing, you know, you'll laugh about this. And I've got the, I have a buddy who owns a, a replica championship belt company. And I literally have these being made. I'm going to start taking them to events if I start speaking again. But every time I get banned from a platform, I'm having a championship belt made with the platform's logo on it that says banned. And I'm going to start carrying these things around everywhere I go just to prove a point. And uh, I don't think anybody else has thought of that, but that's that's in the works. And I hope to have those belts, you know, by mid-fall uh, professionally done. I'm pretty excited about that. So when it comes to the censorship, do you think that these big tech corporations are making the decisions to censor, are making the policy and terms and conditions, uh, content policies, uh, um, and decisions do you think that do you think they're doing that independently or do you think that they are experiencing pressure from the political class i i think it's both hmm. I, I think you have to look at two things first off um conservatives and liberals need each other it's 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 hard to explain that to people when you look at a business perspective but conservatives are the type that they run businesses they're ceos liberals are, are a very creative type they come up with ideas but together you know, that's why you see, you know, innovative companies have so many liberals in them, but eventually end up hiring a conservative CEO because they've got to reel things in and, and run it like an actual business. I think so. I think the real problem is, is a lot, it's a combination of the two. Mm. I think they're getting a lot of pressure from the Democrat party and the elites in that party, uh, whether it's high level people at the DNC or high level people, you know, attorney wise in that, in that movement. I think that there's pressure coming. And then I also think it's just this, uh, you know, this woke movement, this woke brigade, as I call them. Uh, that are that, that listen to everything on the mainstream media and believe it. So it's kind of a combination of the two, in my opinion. But I also believe this, Chase, and I don't know if anyone's ever brought this up. I don't believe that people like myself or an Alex Jones, for example, or a Laura Loomer, a Milo Yiannopoulos, people that I can, you know, that can that have been banned, General Flynn, Mike Lindell. I, I, it's crazy when you I can keep going for an hour on the names of large conservative folks or voices that have been banned now on these platforms. But I don't believe that's just by algorithms or circumstance. I believe that is called, I call that manual moderation. Mm. And I believe they are assigning individuals to certain people and, and, and basically just dinging the, the, you know, the, you know, what out of them on, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, those type of platforms. I don't think it's just algorithms and some random, uh, you know, liberal nerdy guy in a, in a booth. I think that certain people get to a certain level and they assign someone to them. That's my personal opinion. Can't prove it, uh, but I mean, I think if Elon Musk, when this thing goes into the court systems, I think we may, a lot of this may unravel for some of these big tech companies. Yeah, I can't speak for every platform, but uh, I, certain, I certainly believe that what you're saying is the case for YouTube. My experience with YouTube is I had uh, Roger Stone on the podcast, and he made a very brief comment in passing about election fraud regarding the 2020 election. Didn't even really make a claim. He just brought the topic up in passing in a very fleeting moment. And within 24 hours, they took down the video. It hadn't accumulated a lot of views yet, so I don't think it was a product of mass reporting like you might have on a Twitter, for example. But they brought it down. They, they, they gave me a strike on my account. I had to wait, I think, 90 days. And what I did was I edited out that one comment and I re-uploaded the video. And then within 24 hours, they took it down again. 
citing uh, misinformation regarding COVID, right? And so obviously there's someone that just looks at every video of Roger Stone that gets uploaded. Uh, uh, 30 seconds for you to respond, and then we're going to do a, um, uh, talk a little bit about Alex's new book. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you you are spot on. There's somebody that was assigned to Alex. You were unfortunately the victim of, uh, you know, just having an American pioneer on your program like Roger Stone, who's a who's a friend of mine. So I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's sad that this is what we're seeing. It's sad that uh, the people that are supposed to represent us are not calling out Section 230. I mean, they they should be mortified at what they're seeing. The people on our side of the aisle, and they're not. Which it goes into everything I've always said. If they're not pushing back. There's a reason for it. It's a uniparty to a degree, and I think most of us in this country are starting to realize that. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the funny things um, uh, that comes to mind when I think about this censorship in our country and this great reset, reset that we're facing is the old computer error. I think it was on a Super Nintendo or regular Nintendo. It said, all not saved will be lost when you would do a reset. And I think that's the case with The Great Reset. And that's why I want to encourage folks to pick up The Great Reset by Alex Jones, because in America, all not saved will be lost if we allow this great reset to occur. Make sure you check it out on InfoWarsStore.com to get a signed copy. And make sure you pick up a copy for friends and family on Amazon as well so that we can get the book up to the number one seller status. We'll be back next segment with more from Matt Couch. Welcome back, folks. We have the wonderful Matt Couch on with us today. Matt Couch of the DC Patriot. I highly recommend that you check it out. Check out some of his merchandise at Faith and Freedoms, too. You can find him on Getter at Real Matt Couch, spelled exactly how you would imagine. At the end of the last segment, we were talking about the Great Reset just briefly, and I brought up the classic... I believe it was the Nintendo, the, the original NES message. When you would turn it off, all not saved will be lost. And so I want to talk with you, Matt, a little bit about what happened in 2020 and how we have to respond to it in elections moving forward. We have a shared frustration uh, among uh, regarding Americans, patriots, who have lost hope and lost the will or the desire to participate in the election process out of doubt that their vote counts or can make a difference. There are a lot of people who are like, hey, don't even vote. It doesn't even matter. I think a lot of them are bad operators. Uh, I, think it's, I think some of it's a psyop, but I do think that some people feel that way. So what are your thoughts about what patriots, Americans, real people who who love their country what are your thoughts about how we should handle elections moving forward 2022 2024 our participation what should the response be i think first and foremost you have to get out and vote and you have to get involved uh the notion to sit home and your vote doesn't matter is astronomically stupid in my opinion because you wouldn't have had donald trump in 2016 if your vote didn't matter uh, they underestimated Trump in 2016. They had a plan in 2020, you know, with the systematic. I, I believe they they targeted seven key metros. And so there's a whole group out there that screams widespread voter fraud. And I'm not saying that there's not some fraud. We're seeing it. There were, you know, 10 criminal referrals, I think, yesterday in Wisconsin for, for voter fraud. But it was, you know, several people that voted multiple times in multiple states. It wasn't like, 
thousands and thousands of votes. But the, but the point here is, if you just let them have it, Chase, if you just say, oh, I'm not going to vote, you make it easy on them. It's the, it's the, in a free republic, it's the most insane uh, thought process there is, is this side of this 30% of our movement that thinks they shouldn't vote and their vote doesn't matter. Uh, your vote absolutely matters. If you look at Virginia and New Jersey in uh, November last year, in those elections, you know, complete sweep in Virginia and every position from the governorship on down. Then you look at New Jersey, a 21 point swing with the governor of New Jersey in a, in a, in a state like New Jersey. You know, this was a massive win and he only won by like 11,000 votes. So this is your vote absolutely matters. We saw it in November last year in New Jersey and Virginia. We saw what happened. That's going to transcend across the country. But the main thing is people have to tell people about candidates. They have to try to register new voters. They need to get involved. You've got to get involved at the state level. You got to get involved at the local level. City city council races, county judgeships, uh, justice of the peace, they all matter. And for those that say they don't matter, let's look at Fulton County in Atlanta. You know, let's look at Milwaukee and Detroit, Pittsburgh and Philly, Las Vegas and Phoenix. Those seven metros that the left targeted to steal an election. And so when you look at it from that perspective, your vote absolutely matters, especially at the local level. And I think people have to realize that. Get involved. Don't sit on your hands. Um, conservatives have a real problem getting motivated. A real problem wanting to get out compared to the, the left is 10 to 1 more motivated at things, more organized, more well, better funded. Because uh, conservatives, they save up to buy boats and go on vacations, right? The yeah. left is like, oh, you know what? I don't need to eat today. I'll donate to that cause. Yeah, so, I, think, I think there's some of that too. And I, I think that one of the key differences between uh, con conservatives and uh, leftists uh, just culturally and psychologically is that conservatives are focused on their businesses and their families and their careers, and they're happy to write a check, but they really value their time. And so it's much more difficult to get boots on the ground for conservative movements. It's, it's much more difficult to get people hammering phones, I think, for, for conservatives, while people on the left are have much more of an activist mindset. And uh, in, in the instances where there isn't a lot of money, say, for example, students, they're happy to volunteer and knock on doors and make phone calls. But you got to remember that money isn't all that it takes to win elections. I mean, if it was all about money, then we would have had Hillary Clinton in 2016 and the Democrats would have had Bloomberg in the last cycle because he was way outspending everybody and he hardly made a dent in the polls. Like money's an important component, but if you're not resonating with the base, then it doesn't matter how much you spend. You just can't buy power. It's not the only ingredient to an election in this country. So, you know, I would like to encourage Americans and patriots not to simply write a check to a campaign or the Republican party. If you're gonna, if you're gonna write a check, just buy some products off of infowarsstore.com or faith and freedoms uh, uh, from Matt couch. But if you, but we need you to give time. We need you to hammer the phones, knock on doors, be really become a disciple of, of America and, and go and baptize the nation in the name of patriotism, populism, and individualism. Right. What <laughs> 100%. And you know, you're, I'm, I'm going to have to start calling you pastor guys are here. I mean, you said basically, you know, What's not saved will be lost, and now you're throwing that reference out there. I mean, I feel like I'm almost at church right now, man. This is impressive. Well, you got to read a little Matthew if you're talking to Matt Couch, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You do a little uh, Matthew 5:45. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. That's what I always try to tell people when they cannot believe that. How is this happening? This is this is ridiculous. And it's like, folks, 
you got to read your Bible. I, I, you know, I'm not a, I always tell people I run with a lot of big preachers like pastor Brian Gibson and pastor Todd Coconado and Greg Locke, all friends of mine, Mark Burns. But the, the point is I always tell people, look, I'm not a preacher, but I'm a believer. And, you know, you've got to go into this. If you look at Matthew 5, 45, you know, the good book says, look, bad things are going to happen to good people and good things are going to happen to bad people. It's biblical. And so we have to look at that, you know, to a degree. And uh, one of my favorite verses when, uh, when, you know, when people try to say, how do you explain this? Well, like, oh, look at Matthew 5, 45. Mm. And a lot of people don't like, you know, don't like it when you refer things like that. But honestly, Chase, you're, you're spot on. People have to get involved. Uh, become a poll watcher. You know, get involved. I mean, I see states all across the country, and they are literally asking for people to donate their time to count ballots, to work polling stations. To I mean, this is a nonpartisan effort, you know, from the state level. They're supposed to be anyway, I should say, right? It's supposed to be a nonpartisan effort. But the point is, there are they are pleading for help just like all the restaurants in the country. Nobody wants to work. So there's no excuse, I don't think. And they pay you, too. You can actually make some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you all get, they get paid for these positions. So... There's no excuse right now. If people want to get involved, they can get involved. They can help. They can get paid to do it. I think that's the real key here is people having the the, the testicular fortitude and the courage to actually get involved and say, hey, look, you know what? Uh, John's going to have another soccer practice, but you know what? I'm going to go to this event because it's important, and, and John's future matters to me. He's my son, or, you know, Sadie's future matters to me because she's my daughter. You know I mean? Like, I'm going to you know what, I really would love to be at this piano recital, but uh, you know what, she's going to have another piano recital and this country's worth saving. You know what, I'm going to go to this event. And I think people, that mindset has to transition to conservatives at some point, Chase. Yeah. And I know um, uh, you and I uh, were having a conversation late last night talking about show today and just Infowars in general and, and, and Alex Jones, Matt. And I mentioned to you that uh, last weekend I watched um, the documentary Alex's War, uh, which just came out um, it's had overwhelming support. It's launched in over 20 cities uh, all across America. I highly recommend that people, if they live in the proximity of these, these locations, go check it out so that it can stay in theaters for as long as possible. And you can buy it online as well. It's on a number of different streaming platforms. I bought it on Apple TV. I think it's for sale on, on Vimeo and a number of other platforms as well. But we've just been talking about what you can do as an American, as a patriot, to make an impact in American politics and to save America from this great reset. And it's not necessarily about convincing Democrats to vote for Republicans or convincing even swing voters, but just making sure that everyone who believes in America and loves this country actually turns out to vote. Encourage those who are, who are overwhelmed and busy. Remind those who you know believe along the lines of America to go vote. And the first thing you can do is share this documentary, Alex's War, with your network, with your friends, spread the word and reawaken the base, ignite the base to action. After this segment, we'll have some more with Matt Couch.